You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hey, everybody. It's Kelly. Welcome to the November Live podcast. It is cold in the Pacific Northwest. It's crisp and sunny, and it's awesome, and it's chilly. And I have like a big puffy jacket that I literally wore to Everett Base, Everest Base Camp. And uh, now I wear it in the Pacific Northwest when it's like 32 degrees because I'm soft as I'm aging. Um, So welcome and it's cold and happy November and I hope everybody's doing well. I wanted to start off November live podcast with a topic that you guys need to know about. This is, I'll put on the, so you guys can see it. I actually brought my pump that I have. I have a sample here of what we call scream cream. And Scream Cream, some people like that name, some people do not like that name. Um, Basically, you apply it. I think all genders can use this, but stereotypically, Scream Cream is used in the vulva and the clitoris to increase blood flow, um, bring awareness to, basically is a little bit tingly, but like not in an uncomfortable tingly sort of way, not like a, a sleep foot tingly sort of way, but like Um, I was having trouble focusing on sexy time, but this cream helps me focus on my pelvis because it's like tingly and I'm aware of it. So Scream Cream is a compounded medication. If you Google Scream Cream, because you guys are all Googling Scream Cream right now, you're going to like not find one specific type or dose or concentration um, because everybody's kind of doing a different scream cream. I'm going to tell you what's in mine because this is what I've been using in my clinic and then we'll talk about it. So this is from Men MD, which they need rebranding because now they're like doing stuff for women, but Men MD um, from Pharma Labs. So American company, they do compounding nationwide. So this is sildenafil, 2%. Maybe you've heard of sildenafil. The brand name for sildenafil is Viagra. So sildenafil, 2%, arginine, 6%, theophylline, 2.5%, topical cream. There's also a little bit, I think it's mint. I'm pausing. I'm like peppermint, mint. There's something in the cream base too that kind of adds to the tingling. And you can like put that in there. You can take it out. The good thing about compounding medications is... Doctors get to kind of be creative and pharmacists get to be creative because you're making stuff up individually personalized for you. Um, Insurance companies don't cover medications that are compounded because compounded medications are not FDA approved. And a lot of insurance companies say, if it's not FDA approved, we're not going to cover it, right? So downside of compounded meds is you might not get a consistency across time or locations. You're not going to get insurance to cover it because it's compounded meds aren't FDA approved. This holds true for hormones, scream cream, or anything that's compounded. So you apply this. The instructions are apply one pump to affected area 15 to 30 minutes prior to activity. Now, what I like about that is you got to sit in your bed, rub some cream on, and you're going to chill out. You're going to focus on your genitals and you're going to focus on thinking about having sex in 15 to 30 minutes. There's just something very like mindful and relaxing about that because so many people are like, rush, 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 done with my day. Kids are in bed. Maybe they're not fully present if they've decided then to have sex. So, hey, for you to be like, honey, see you in bed in 15 to 30 minutes. I'm going to go 
chill out with my scream cream like it's some bonus alone time with yourself um, and I think a lot of people don't know it's the lack of adult sex ed but we don't know that we actually have to like transition to a parasympathetic nervous system where we are accepting and engaged and relaxed for sex and a lot of us were number one we're not good at it number two we're not taught like hey that's what helps people have good sex is like creating a presence creating that eroticism creating that relaxed accepting state and so if you're gonna put cream on your clitoris and your vulva and chill out maybe you get a little vibrator and you warm up the blood flow and you focus on the pelvis and then your partner comes in in 15 to 30 minutes afterwards and you say this scream cream's amazing and you're like well you could probably do all those things without buying $65 scream cream Prices pre- prices may vary in, loca- in locations, but um, yeah, it, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to play with this stuff. And that's why I want people to think about this. It's like this stuff is just fun and can be used to enhance your experience. I don't think anybody's going to be like, I can't, you know, I can't live without my scream cream. I always have to have it. You don't need it. It's just something to try and to have fun with. So it was like all the rage in my office today. This is what you get when you work in a urology office is you get everybody talking about scream cream <laughs> what is scream cream can I have some scream cream and uh saw a very uh, large amount of people who um came in for sexual dysfunction this week and one was this this lovely person she was in her mid-70s came in for decreased orgasm um not that long ago right so a lot of people will think like decreased orgasm since menopause which I certainly see a lot of you know, I see like, oh, I haven't really had a great orgasm for 17 years. And you're like, oh my God, you know, thank you for coming in. But we got to try to, we got to try to reverse 17 years of your brain not having an orgasm, which can be done. Not all the time, but it can be done. So this, but the going back, this woman had, had decreased orgasms for like four months and she was very specific. She's like, I'm here for testosterone. And I'm like, oh, well, where did you hear about testosterone for this? And she's like, my daughter, my daughter takes testosterone for this. And I'm like, okay, well, is she on systemic testosterone or local testosterone? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So we don't have a lot of studies and data specific. Remember, we live in a society where like, it's not okay for women to have sex. It's not okay for women to talk to their doctors about sex. Doctors are uncomfortable talking to women about sex. So do we have tons of studies and data on how to help women with orgasms? Not tons. Um, but there is some thought that hormones help. So we're, we decided to start her on um, an estrogen testosterone compounded product because you can't get a estrogen testosterone combo product. There isn't an FDA approved. A company doesn't make that as a standard product. So that, again, is compounded. Um to bring in some hormones locally to the pelvis you can apply to the clitoris and this is not as needed for sex this is like hormones to the skin to get better blood flow to get better collagen to get better um, sensitivity we do have some data that systemic uh, estrogen does increase blood flow in the genitalias of people taking um, systemic estrogen post-menopause so when you say like backing up when you say like are are hormones good for preserving sex life not always we have people who aren't on hormones can't take hormones they have great sex lives but some women really do notice that when they start on the postmenopause hormones that 
the arousal seems to be a little bit easier. The lubrication gets to be a little bit easier. Certainly anything that helps with uh, dryness or pain is wonderful for your sex life. So, but mixed bag on studies saying you have to have hormones to have great sex. But we do have studies saying that women who are on estrogen replacement do have increased um, blood flow, blood vessels, and um, ability to have arousal. So there you go. Ask your friendly compounding doctor about Scream Cream. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was the recommendation statement that came out November 1st, 2022 by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. These are This is basically like the big group that um, advises Medicare. So they had come out a little bit earlier on hormone therapy and then their website had said, uh, our decision is pending, more data. And what they came out with on November 1st is looking at hormone therapy for the primary prevention of chronic conditions in postmenopausal persons. So this is on a society level, not an individual level. And this came out in JAMA 2022. So basically what they said, I'm going to read, I'm going to read the importance to you. So Menopause is defined as a cessation of a person's menstrual cycle. It's defined retrospectively, 12 months after the final menstrual period. Perimenopause, or the menopausal transition, is the few-year time period preceding a person's final menstrual period, and is characterized by increasing menstrual cycle length var variability, periods of, uh, periods of no period, the word for that is amenorrhea, and often symptoms such as hot flashes. Remember, folks, hot flashes can happen before you're done with your periods. It's called perimenopause. Um, the prevalence and incidence of most chronic diseases, cardiovascular disease, cancer, osteoporosis, and fracture increases with age, and U.S. persons who reach menopause are expected on average to live more than another 30 years. So they basically did a review and they looked um, for asymptomatic postmenopausal people who are considering hormone therapy for the primary prevention of chronic medical conditions. So this may or may not apply to you. You may not be asymptomatic. But in the people who say, should I just be on hormones? We can now say that the United States, the United, the U.S. Uh, Preventative Services Task Force says no, not for the primary prevention of chronic conditions. So they say there's no net benefit. And they said we have moderate certainty. So they recommend against the use of combined estrogen and progestin for the primary prevention of chronic conditions. And they recommend against the use of estrogen alone in people who have had a hysterectomy. These are grade D recommendations. Let's see if I can find that. They basically say, like, we don't have wonderful evidence. It's grade D. Um, let's see if I can find the definition of grade D for you guys while we can. Let's see what they say. And they said the recommended statement applies to asymptomatic postmenopausal people. So if, if you have hot flashes, get your hot flashes treated. This is for the people who are like, is it worth it for me to be on hormones for primary prevention of disease? As a global population or as a nation, they say no. Now, let's pause for the cause. All people are not created medically equal. If you have a high risk for osteoporosis, your mom has osteoporosis, you're a thin Caucasian female, et cetera, et cetera, let alone if you smoke or on, or on steroids... Um, the FDA has approved menopause hormone therapy for primary prevention of osteoporosis. And so you might consider it for that reason. The United States Physician Services Task Force is not singling out, you know, higher risk individuals here. 
Um, so does this mean that you absolutely shouldn't? I would say no. It could, because this is on a na- on a national kind of population health view. They're saying we shouldn't put all 50-year-old women in America on hormones to try to prevent disease. That's what primary prevention means. I can't think of a medication that we use for primary prevention. We don't use finasteride for primary prevention of prostate cancer, even though we have studies that show it decreases the risk of prostate cancer. We still don't use it for primary prevention. I was actually talking to my gynecologist friend who sent me this article, and she and I was I was basically like, even aspirin isn't used for primary prevention. I can't think of anything used for primary prevention. Can you? And she said, gynecologists use aspirin for primary prevention of preeclampsia in high-risk pregnant women. But like, that's basically it. So... It's really important to understand these guidelines and understand if they apply to you or not and what primary prevention means. Primary prevention, like basically, should we put everybody on Lipitor and a statin to decrease the risk of heart attacks? The answer is no. They say it's not it's not worth it, right? But are some people on it either for secondary prevention or because they're high risk? Yes, they are. Now, I'll say one more thing about the United States Physician Services Task Force. This is the same group that I'm maybe a little bit biased because I'm a urologist and I've been doing this for a while. This is the same group that gave prostate cancer screening a grade D recommendation. So they said, don't don't screen for prostate cancer. The urologists never agreed with that. Most I would say most urologists did not agree with that because we knew what was going to happen because we had urologists that have been around before PSA screening happened. Right. So they knew before we had this PSA test, which inevitably is crappy, they detected men with prostate cancer when they were symptomatic and metastatic, right? Late stage disease. We changed the needle with PSA and we were able to catch them a lot earlier. So much, in fact, that we realized we were overtreating and giving more side effects than cure. And so basically, the backlash was we shouldn't screen for prostate cancer anymore. That was about, off the top of my head, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, And what we know now, a big paper just came out on this, that we have uh, a much higher risk of metastatic prostate cancer now because we stopped screening. So this is the same organization that told us don't look for prostate cancer and we now know what's happening. So I take them with a grain of salt on their nationwide recommendations that as as an individual, you are not, you know, population health. Now, what they what happens is based upon the recommendations, Medicare des- decides to cover a service or not. So the good news is menopause hormones are still re- pretty dirt cheap if you uh, choose them wisely and don't get compounded ones and don't go to like hormone pill factory places. Uh, so I don't think it's going to I don't think this is going to change insurance's coverage of it because these medications tend to be generic and cheap. So um, that that is my thought about that. Let's see if they can see anything else. Do, 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 do. In 2017, the United States Physician Services Task Force recommended against the use of combined estrogen and progestin for the primary prevention of chronic conditions. They're basically just saying we, we haven't changed our opinion about that. Um, And they talk about the WHI. 
WHO is not modeled to look at primary prevention of most things. It was a primary prevention for cardiovascular disease, and we, we know how that turned out. You can't put 75-year-olds on um, estrogen if they haven't seen it for a while because you actually make, make uh, heart issues worse. So that is the primary prevention study. Let's see what they say about colorectal cancer. Uh, four trials reported on the incidence of colorectal cancer in persons randomized to estrogen plus progesterone, uh, progestin therapy. Persons randomized to estrogen plus progestin had a lower risk of colorectal cancer than those in the placebo group. This was like hazard ratios of 0.62. So that you had a decreased risk of cancer by 40%. And they're saying it's still not worth it on a society level to go on this stuff. So that's, I'm going to, Oh, I'm just going to look at one more dementia. No significant increased risk in probable dementia was found in persons taking estrogen alone. Slightly higher risk if you had estrogen plus progestin. But again, that was the WHI when most people were already older. And if you've heard my menopause lecture on the healthy cell hypothesis is you need the hormones on the brain before the brain has the dementia because then it can prevent dementia. But if you throw the hormones on a brain that already has been without estrogen for years, so that's called the healthy cell hypothesis. All right, my friends, I will pause you on that as I drink my tea. Enough, enough of the United States Services Preventative Task Force. Um, let's talk about this new study that was presented at... I was just in Florida at the Sexual Medicine Society, and it's two amazing surgeons. They are, one's a urologist, one's a plastic surgeon. They basically presented their paper on um, how many nerve endings the human clitoris has. And the cool thing about this, cool, cool slash not cool, is nobody had ever done this before. And to think it's 2022 and like we don't have anatomy data specifically on humans for the clitoris is a little bit bizarre because like anatomy studies happened a long time ago, but we didn't have this. When people quote that the clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings, that's actually a bovine study. So cadaver of a animal. Bovines are cows, I think. And um, I could be wrong. Now I'm doubting my knowledge of bovine. Define bovine. Um the farmers in the group are like yelling. Yeah, bovine, relating to or affecting cattle. So what they did is that they did human cadaver studies and it's not 8,000, it's 10,000. So tons and tons of nerve endings in the clitoris. It's an interesting study and I'm so glad they did it because they're bringing awareness to the fact the clitoris effing exists. But it's almost silly to be like, to get any sort of justification out of that. Like, see, it has tons of nerve endings. So you should like, use it sexually like I don't like the, if there's any like I don't really know what the point is as if you're like justifying that you should acknowledge the clitoris but like whatever helps but I love that they did it it made it made its rounds on Instagram and uh, social media I think the Daily Show might have mentioned it um, or Stephen Colbert so God bless. Very cool. Somebody sent me, changing topics, somebody sent me this handout. It was a copy of a handout from Kaiser in California. 
Kaiser Permanente, Thrive, Midlife and Menopause, a Kaiser Permanente guidebook for women. Let me read this to you. Let me know when you get upset. Don't give up on sex. Instead of waiting until you feel desire, let yourself be willing. You may not start out by being, quote, in the mood, but most women can get in the mood. You can prepare yourself, get help from a supportive partner, and keep your communication open. Staying sexually active with your partner or by self-stimulation increases blood flow to the vagina and helps maintain elasticity and moisture, decreases discomfort, and brings many other benefits. Okay, so I was fine with the beginning of that paragraph. So many people stop having sex because they don't have spontaneous desire. Like, knock it off. You know how much, you know how many times I have spontaneous desire for exercise with my alarm going off at five in the morning? Rarely. But I'm a person who believes in fitness. I want it in my life. I enjoy it when I'm doing it and I enjoy it when I'm done. I just don't have spontaneous desire for it, right? So I agree with the first part of that paragraph. This is what's irritating. Let me break it down. Okay. Staying sexually active with your partner or by self-stimulation increases blood flow to the vagina. I agree with that. Arousal increases blood flow to the vagina. That's perfectly accurate. And helps maintain elasticity and moisture. We have no data on that. People make these effing claims that like being sexually active prevents genital urinary syndrome of menopause or prevents atrophy and we have zero studies on that. Zero studies. There is one study that looked at, it was a gynecology clinic and it looked at sexually active women and not sexually active women. What they found when they brought these people in was that the sexually active women had less vaginal atrophy than the non-sexually active women. Now, let's think about studies. Does this mean that sexual activity prevents or decreases vaginal atrophy? Not at all. This was not a randomized controlled study of like, you guys keep having sex, you guys don't, let's check on your vaginas in four years. This was a Hey, and the people who said they were still having sex, we found this. And hey, and the people who weren't having sex, we found this. Because maybe the atrophy is the reason why they weren't having sex. It's not that the sex preserved the vaginas. And to take that study and to make audacious claims that being sexually active prevents atrophy and helps with moisture and elasticity, we simply do not have the data. Now, we should have the data. It'd be great to do a study on this. But it's insane for anybody to say you should have sex for any of this. For prime. The United States Physician Services Task Force would not recommend this. <laughs> Going back to them. But like, I, I think it's shooting all over women. I think it's making them have sex out of obligation for air quotes health. Um you have sex because you want to do it, because you want to be sexually active with your partner. Not because you should to help prevent atrophy, because we have zero data on that. And I love, I was trying to find this, this um, reel or Instagram before I came on here. Dr. Mary Claire Haver did a, she basically texted me because this audacious physician, doctor type male made a post and was basically like be sexually active to prevent vaginal atrophy to prevent future pain was basically like shooting all over my women and I'm literally because I went and looked at the data you guys like I'm like I want to know the study I want to see that this is pre prevents disease and it doesn't women who are sexually active may have less atrophy because like 
atrophy was going to be what made them to stop having sex, right? So correlation does not equal causation. Incredibly important. Incredibly important to understand. So I would like Kaiser to revise this statement. I think it's shooting all over the women. I think we have no data to support it. And the other crappy thing about this Kaiser statement at the end of the sentence, um, let's see. Staying sexually active with your partner, blah, 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 increases blood flow to the vagina and helps, so yes, and helps maintain elasticity and moisture. No, we have no data to that. Decreases discomfort. You're just telling me that having sex decreases discomfort? So you should have sex so you, if you have pain so you won't have pain because it cures it? Like, there's so many things wrong with this paragraph. And brings many other benefits. What the hell does that mean? Like, Tell women to have sex for vague, vague, more vague reasons. Knock it off. And then it immediately goes into explore erotic books and videos to see if they enhance sex for you and your partner. Like, ugh, do we give them a C plus for trying? Like the fact that they're even talking about it? Okay. But it's like baseless. It's super shoddy. It's very vague. Um, this Kaiser thing needs to go away. And then, then it, it continues Masturbation, self-stimulation. Many people find masturbation a pleasurable way to release sexual tension. I wouldn't say we have a bunch of 55-year-old women saying, I have a ton of sexual tension. What should I do with it? I'm just asking for a friend. Like, is that happening? Do we have a bunch of 55-year-old females with sexual tension that don't know that masturbation helps? Oh my God, I can't handle this Kaiser thing. Others enjoy it to explore and learn what arouses them and bring the most pleasure. I agree. I agree with that. Like this article's not all bad. It's just halfway shitty. So whoever is in charge of this Kaiser article, send me a new copy when you've gotten a new one because this one's audacious and uh, you're, go you're, you're overreaching on it for sure. Um. Next thing I want to talk about is the role of our brains with sex. I saw this I saw this like twice this week when a woman came in, she had some judgment about her body, she had judgment about her spouse, she had some judgment about her pelvis being broken and I did an exam, she had a very healthy she had a very healthy everything down there like it was probably in the top 90% of healthy/normal. Um, nothing a little bit of vaginal estrogen, physical therapy, and lube couldn't fix. And I'm like, you know, I think the biggest thing for you to work on, if I was to say, would be your brain. Get, and she's like, I just don't think this is psychological. And I'm like, and I looked at her and I'm like, what's the biggest sex organ? And she couldn't answer it, right? The biggest sex organ for people in the back is the brain. How you think about sex, how you think about your pelvis, how you think about your spouse, how you deal with your stress... Side note, asterisk, don't underestimate the role of stress in your shitty sex life. Stress, stress, stress is horrible for your, for your sex life. Don't underestimate that that is the reason why you don't want to have sex or you don't enjoy sex or all the above. Sympathetic nervous system, not great for sex. Parasympathetic nervous system, awesome for sex. So don't underestimate that. But like for her to think this, this is... And you see this all the time. Like people are like, doctors need to stop separating the brain from the body. And it's like, dude, doctors are trying to not do that. We're like, the role of the mind is incredibly powerful in sex, in pain, in so many different things. 
And the patients are the ones who are like, don't tell me it's all in my brain. I'm like, you literally can't have sex and exist without your brain. Your brain is involved. And so I'm always very curious about how to talk to people about the brain body connection because when I bring, I must be doing it wrong because when I bring it up, I get, I see this big resistance. People believe, and I tell this to them, I'm like, when a doctor says like, we've got to work on either coaching or therapy or something like that, it does not mean it's air quotes all in your head, which sounds very dismissive. That's not ever what I mean. It's like the role of how you think, how you feel, how you pursue or withdraw or avoid. That's all brain stuff. And for somebody to say like, it's not psychological. It's like, I don't even know what it, be, it being psychological means. Like your brain's involved. We got to address that. It's the biggest sex organ. Simple as that. The brain is attached to the body. I am a doctor who's trying to reattach them. Stop trying to dismiss your brain, people. It's very important. So just wanted to bring up the point of sex negativity and the role of stress and the role of how you view your partner, how you view you as a sexual person. In order for you to become a sexual person who enjoys sex, you might need to undergo a radical transformation of who you believe you are as a human, right? And like under undress like all of that, like, do you think people who enjoy sex are, do you judge them? right? So you can't possibly become that person. Like it might be a radical transformation to become somebody who you are not right now. I say enjoy the ride. Like you do you, do you go blow your own mind, become a different person. It's all good. Um, and my final thought is a, a woman who was worried. She had some pelvic issues and she was worried. She was uh, newly dating and she was really worried that her part male partner was going to leave her uh, if her you know vagina is broken and she couldn't have sex with him that way. And I looked at her and I'm like, I'm like, first of all, like he never told her that. She's assuming, she's worried. And I'm like, would you leave him if his penis was broken? And she's like, oh no, not at all. Like I would love the companionship and blah blah blah. And I'm like, well, why would why are you assuming the worst that he would leave you, right? Like give people a, half a chance, you guys, and and talk about it. But if, you know, if you, you wouldn't leave him, if his, there's lots of broken penises and vaginas and they're very worthy of love. And I'm like, sex is not just putting a penis in a vagina, especially as we get older. Sex is intimacy and sharing and being vulnerable and cuddling and touching and massage and naked spooning and like all the, all of the above. Oral sex, all the things. So external vulvar play clitoral stimulation all the, all the things i'm going to i digress but the point is let's not judge our bodies and let's expand our view now when we're maybe perhaps young and healthy so that when we hit those road bumps it's going to be just a little bit more okay and if you communicate and you think positive and you work on all your body image stuff when it's easy you're going to have the skills that you need to do it when it's hard and that's just a beautiful thing. So happy November. I'm off to Hawaii for an amazing Eckhart Tolle retreat. I'm going to come back all zen, maybe change my life radically. Probably not. And um, I think the other, I think I can kind of give you guys a spoiler alert. I'm like saving it for the end of the podcast. Um, I'm going to do a TED Talk in 2023. 
I'm not sure if I can say the location yet. It's in the United States because I decided with my husband that we wouldn't go international um, for TED Talks. So I kept I kept my uh, kept my net in the United States. So it's in the United States. It's in 2023. It's in the first quarter. I can do hard things. I can memorize something that's 12 minutes long and try to change the world. Um, so follow me on my journey for TED Talk instruction. I have my first group coaching for TED Talk tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to it. These people are amazing and it's going to be fun. And I'm, of course, I'm going to talk about sex on a stage with a with a red carpet and it's going to be awesome. So sorry to say that for the very end of the podcast, but for, hey, for all of you guys who like stuck around till minute 33, there you go. I love you so much. Thank you for drinking tea with me and getting feisty and trying to change the world and learning all the things so we can help all the people. Your friend, Kelly, signing off. Love you. Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.